I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Hey there, Parallax Views listeners. On this edition of the program, we have a double feature episode. Later on in the program, a previously unpublished conversation with John Duffy, co-author with Ray Novoselsky of The Watchdogs Didn't Bark, The CIA, The NSA, and The Crimes of the War on Terror, discussing his recent documentary podcast series, Origins Birth of a Pandemic, which tackles COVID-19 and the lab leak hypothesis. But first, Project Censored's Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon return to the program to discuss their new book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. This conversation was recorded around the time that Mia Jankovic and the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board were in the news, so we'll be discussing that as well, and a number of issues related to their book, including critical theory and Frankfurt School thinkers, the abortion debate, and much, much more. So, with that being said, let's get right to it with... Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon, authors of Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. Welcome back to Parallax Views, two of my favorite guests. They're sort of becoming reoccurring guests. Uh, Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon. Uh, they represent uh, Project Censored, uh, the great 
Media Literacy and Media Watchdog Group. How are you both doing today? Doing well. Thanks for having us again. It's great to see you. Doing well, JG. Always good to be here with you. So you've, you've got a new book out. Uh, you guys have been cranking out some, some books. Uh, the, the Project Censored uh, 2022 book. And of course, Nolan, we just had you on the show uh, only a few short weeks ago to talk about the podcaster's dilemma. But now you two have joined forces for this book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. And uh, Mickey is holding up the book there. So uh, could you guys talk about how this uh, book came to be? Uh, for sure. Yeah, we, um, as you mentioned, Mickey and I, we, we do a lot of... Um writing and, and public talks. Um, we did a lot together in 2019 for United States of Distraction. Uh, Mickey does them consistently every year for the annual Project Censored book. And I went out in 2020 for the Anatomy of Fake News book, which I wrote. And um, whether we were at talks together or afterward, we would always compare our notes. We, we said we keep getting the same question over and over again, which is people would say, okay, we get it. There's problems with the media. You've, you've shown us ways to spot fake news. Great. But how do I talk to people who believe content that I think is false or I disagree with? And um, this happens so much that Mickey and I were thinking like, I think we actually need to write a book about this. Um, we see that our students feel uncomfortable talking to people they disagree with. We see our colleagues are uncomfortable with it. We hear to these public talks. There seems to be an insatiable appetite um, for constructive dialogue. And at the same time, a lot of the headlines in, in news media outlets were talking about how we were in the middle of a civil war. I remember um, uh, Carl Bernstein called us, said we were in a cold civil war, and then polls showed that Americans thought a civil war was going to happen in their lifetime. And we recognize that, that di dialogue is necessary to have a functioning democracy, and, and civil war is is almost certain um, if we live in a population where Americans' number one fear is other Americans, which it, which that is the case right now, and we're unable to talk to each other. So we, we wrote this book as hopefully a way to um, alter the trajectory the country was on and, and say, look, there, there's a purpose and a, uh, and a utility to constructive dialogue, and we'd all be much wiser and better off if we engaged in it. Would both of you be able to talk a little bit more about that? Like since you said uh, you, you even have students that, that have difficulties talking to people they may disagree with. Could you um, speak to that a little bit more? I mean, just in a broad sense. Yeah, you know, <clears throat> we we started the, as Nolan said, this came out of the last chapter of our City Lights book, United States of Distraction, Media Manipulation and Post-Truth America and What We Can Do About It. That part, what we can do about it. The last chapter was called Make America Think Again, kind of joking, maybe, maybe we were more thoughtful, I, maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, um, but our hope was is that, look, we can do this. Nolan and I have been teaching critical thinking for years. Um, in fact, that's where I met Nolan once upon a time, you know, traipsing through one of my critical thinking classes. Um, and uh, so we've always been passionate about this. We've, we've always been more interested in trying to help people um, understand how to think critically. We're, we're not interested in telling people what to think. That defeats the purpose. Um, but, you know, we we live in really hyper partisan times and there's great mistrust among educators, among the media, et cetera. And, and there's there's this there's this persistent kind of um, nagging perception that that the media is telling us what to think, that the teachers are indoctrinating everybody. Um, you know, I mean, if only we were that lucky, you know, uh, that, that the students just listened to us and they went off and made the world a better place. That would be cool. Um, 
But you know, that's not happening. The students really do want to think about things and they want to be presented with different ideas and they want to have, have the opportunity to discuss them, not necessarily shut people down. But our culture, the cancel culture of today is really hell bent on I'm right, you're wrong, no matter what. Uh, we got to cancel people if they, we can agree on 90% of things, but if we agree on one, disagree on one thing, we've got to circle the wagons and shut everybody down. Um, and Nolan and I think that that's very anti-intellectual and, um, you know, that's, that's not the way that we need to, to, to model uh, discourse and disagreement in our society. So we actually, when we were writing this book, we started out with critical thinking, nuts and bolts, thinking, look, before we even get into this, we got to make sure people understand how to think critically. And then we put the brakes on because we're always reminded that how you communicate to people is at least as important, if not more important than what you actually think you're communicating, because that's what people take away. People see your body language. They hear your tone of voice. They, they check out the words you're using. And so we decided, you know what we should do? We should start with how we're a fractured society. We should start with why we're more divided and partisan and what we can do about that. And we should start by talking about constructive dialogue and discourse. What does it look like? What is destructive dialogue? Why does that not work? Why is it important to agree to disagree, which is not an invitation for abuse. It does not condone hate speech or, or speech that invokes violence or incites violence. It's not an anything goes, but just like musical improvisation, it fits within the guidelines of certain rules, rules of rhetoric, rules of free speech. We have those, right? We have a long, rich history of the First Amendment, of the free press. We talk about that in the book. We talk about how history matters. We also talk about how previous generations felt just as divided as we are, and yet they somehow managed to come out the other side of it. So in a lot of ways, JG, we talk about the history uh, that we have at our disposal. And we talk about how to best use sort of the best practices of that history to create robust dialogue and disagreement in the present. And again, that's what we hope to achieve by this book. I was going to say it's a um, it's an attention grabbing title in a lot of ways, uh, just because let's agree to disagree, I think, has become uh, <laughs> I, I hate to say it, but it's become uh, controversial and I, I, not necessarily without reason. I can see why, um, you know, people are very upset over uh, the potential overturning of Roe versus Wade or uh, we just had the Buffalo shooter and, and people that talk about great replacement theory. I, I don't think we should just, um, you know, let people say whatever they want and, and not be able to push back on them. I think, uh, you know, freedom of speech requires that we um, are able to critique as well as uh, give our opinions. But how do you sort of, I, I guess, get past that? Like this this issue of, I, I think people are going to read that title and say, well, what, are we just supposed to, uh, uh, you know, not be mad about th this thing happening or, or, or this with Roe versus Wade or this with the uh, great replacement uh, craziness and all that? Well, I, I would, um, it, it's a great, it's a great question. It's something we've, we've already, um, you know, run into, uh, you know, we, we had, when we just previewed the cover on social media, we already got comments from people about what they thought was wrong with the book. And it was literally the, the reason we wrote the book, people are judging the book by its cover. 
Um, and that's why we wrote it, right? Let's agree to disagree is, is not necessarily about how we need to walk away and just be comfortable in the fact we disagree. It can mean that, and in and, and the text we, we note it can mean that, but we're also calling for something different. We're saying that if we disagree, we need to actually communicate that to each other and create a space where we can disagree because that's how you change minds. So this idea that um, you know you you disagree with um, the Roe v. Wade decision, or you support the Roe v. Wade decision, you're never going to open up the possibility of changing the mind of either side if you don't engage in dialogue. Um, and I would argue that, um, particularly in the case of some of these white supremacists, I would be uncomfortable saying all, but in the case of some. Um, I wonder how much a difference it would make if someone had interrogated the things they were believing and the, and the ideas they were espousing. And instead, they were forced to confront the evidence or lack thereof of some of these ideas. Would it change minds? Um, you know, and there, there is evidence to, to say that it does. Um, a robust critical thinking that forces people to defend their position can lead to them changing their minds. Uh, whereas when these folks are in a echo chamber online, um, and these ideas are being reinforced consistently, it's very easily to, very easy to become radicalized and make logical jumps because no one's challenging you and you're not hearing any other evidence. So when we say disagree, we say, yes, let's disagree. Let's have constructive dialogue where we can get other facts and ideas on the agenda of, of everybody um, for the hope that people will gravitate toward truth versus you know, insane replacement theories and things like that. So, JG, one of the things we write about in the book, to Nolan's point, is <clears throat> we talk about the story of African-American activist Daryl Davis, who <clears throat> has gone around and talked to white supremacists, members of the Ku Klux Klan, and he's collected over 200 hoods, um, you know, uniforms of Klansmen, um, because he's, he's, he's changed their minds about white supremacy. He's gotten into the minds of these. We're not born racist. You know, we're not born misogynist. These are learned behaviors and they can be unlearned, right? And, but, it, but you have to be willing to do it, right? And so when we hear people, you know, again, we hear, how do we talk to these other people? We can't even talk to those people. So-and-so is a white supremacist. That's not okay. We can't just agree to disagree about that. Yeah, well, we're not saying you should just let it go. What we're saying is, is that you need to not only know how to think clearly and critically and source material so that other people can see it and understand it, you have to also think about what are your values? How are you communicating to someone? And by the way, did you actually bother to listen to somebody else that has these different views? Or are you just playing off of a media created caricature of some other, some otherness, right? And so we, we have to be very careful of, of that. Um, and especially when we're arguing amongst ourselves, you know, let's say on the left where we agree with a lot of different ideas of each other and we, we stumble into some area where we disagree and it's as if we forget how to talk to each other. We, we immediately get into a circular firing squad. Um, we immediately shut down and stop listening to people and we start treating anybody that we disagree with as the other. And again, what we're trying to do in this textbook is build bridges, not walls. And we, there are best practices in the social sciences, in humanities, in logic, in rhetoric, in politics, in history. There's a lot of different ways that you can communicate with people and bring things to the table. One of the things we realized too, JG, is that we often aren't speaking the same language. Are we talking about pro-life or pro-choice? Are we talking about both? 
what are what what values are behind those issues with Roe v. Wade? And just because somebody might hierarchically rank them one way or another doesn't mean that we don't still share all those same values. We need to try to figure out how do we get in to having a trustworthy conversation with each other that we can begin to express where our disagreements are and how best we might mitigate them. And I was going to say too, just so people don't misunderstand, I don't think I don't think we're, we're saying this is a problem necessarily on one political end or the other, uh, because I think some people think that I think some people will assume that we're just talking since you mentioned the left and how there's uh, often infighting on the left. I, I don't think it's just the left, though. I think the right also buys into some caricatures about, you know, with with the Roe versus Wade thing. I had someone say to me recently, uh, oh, anyone, anyone that's pro-choice just wants to kill babies. And I, I just thought to myself, I don't. I think that's a really bad caricature of the uh, uh, point of view. So it, it seems like it's really pervasive, I guess is what I'm saying. Yeah, we, I mean, you know, that's one of the, the key themes of the, the book. I mean, Mickey and I, um, you know, really worked over time to find sources that purposely come from a position we disagree with. And we worked with our editors to make sure we introduced some of these contentious issues in a way where you understood the different sides we tried our best not to take a side in these debates, but to show folks that it is humanly possible to understand the multiple sides of a debate uh, without necessarily coming down on one side or another. And we think that's we think that's critical because if you really are going to engage in debates about um, key policy issues, say like um, abortion rights and things like that, you're really um, hindered from making any progress if you don't understand what the other side's argument is or what evidence they use to support it. So you can still be uh, pro-choice, but it, it's still worth your time to understand what the so-called pro-life movement is arguing and what evidence they're providing. That's the best way to be able to engage with dialogue and, and structure policy. And look, people are complex. Um, you know, the, the nation's about 50-50 in polls um, when it comes to how they feel about abortion, but almost two-thirds supported Roe v. Wade. So it is possible to have people have a difference of opinion on, on um, a practice, but not a policy. And I think that speaks to the, the, uh, how essential dialogue is to getting to understand the complexities of humans. So the other thing I wanted to get into was um, the section on critical thinking, you have a whole section on test theory and spot ideology. And uh, that was really interesting to me because you talk about uh, critical theory. Maybe you could, I, I think a lot of my listeners are familiar with that term, but they may not have it fully fleshed out what the origins of it are. And uh, you even talk about how it's been, you know, potentially co-opted and even weaponized. So what is critical theory? And maybe we could go through that segment of the book on critical theory. Want to start that, Nolan? Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, critical uh, critical theorists are are interested in looking at the ways in which power shapes relationships in societies, um, essentially. And the way, and from our perspective, we're interested in the way power shapes what passes for truth and what passes for knowledge. And so, the idea behind critical theory is that we come from different we're all in different positions of power and our position of power helps shapes our reality, right? And so one of the most famous often used examples is like Christopher Columbus, right? From um, Christopher Columbus's position as uh, the colonizer, um, that position saw this as a quote unquote new world of people. 
Um, and the truth or reality for Columbus was this was a new world full of slaves and riches that had not been tapped. But from the positionality of power of, of the indigenous peoples, the Americas, those that uh, would be the colonized, th they saw this as their world. This was the world. And um, they saw Columbus as an invader coming from the outside. So how we tell that story reflects who's in power, right? If, if history books told that story from the position of Native Americans, Columbus would be quite a villain versus get a Columbus Day, which he had for centuries in this country. Um, and so that's the ways in which power, power shapes knowledge and, and shapes information, shapes dialogue, shapes our reality. Scholars have built upon that to look at, well, how was power expressed? And one of the ways in which power is expressed quite importantly, which we go into in the book, is through identity. Um, so um, there is a, a racial hierarchy of power in the United States um, that privileges whiteness. And so we, we talk about the ways in which community color, communities of color have a different lived experience and structures operate differently for those from communities of color than they do for whites. And we talk about this in terms of race and gender and sexuality and ability and, and age and things like that. And the reason why this is important is as we critically think about content and sort of the enlightenment principles of critical thinking, right? Evidence to prove outcomes and to construct and deconstruct arguments, we also must um, interrogate the ways in which power privileges some people to make those arguments and some people's evidence to count versus others. So that's why it's it's centered in, in the text. Um, in At least in our estimation, critical theory is a necessity for teaching critical thinking. Yeah, and we talk about, as Nolan said, we talk about intersectionality, we talk about queer theory, feminist theory, we kind of go through, bear in mind, this is more of an introduction, right? So it's, it's a way of introducing a lot of these ideas with critical thinking, with communication skills. And then, of course, we apply all that, the, the, the analysis of power, right? Paulo Freire, Henry Giroux, um, we talk about pedagogy of the oppressed. We talk about power relationships, and then we relate it to media, right? So no matter what your primary areas of interest are or I'd pull, whatever it is, Everything comes through media as a filter, right? And now we're kind of riffing on Nick Johnson from the Federal Communications Commission about your second priority, right? So no matter what your primary area of interest is, if you don't understand media and you don't understand the power of the press and you don't understand how that shapes the way in which society even, even what topics we even discuss, right? Um, then you're really missing a big part of, um, you're really missing a big part of the analysis. In fact, we go back and quote Malcolm X from the 1960s, right? And he says, the press, this is a, a great speech he gave in Harlem. The press is so powerful in its image-making role, it can make the criminal look like he's the victim and make the victim look like he's the criminal, 1960s pronouns, but this is Malcolm X talking. This is the press, an irresponsible press. If you aren't careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the impressing. How many times do we see the media in that role, in that function? And so for Nolan and I, this connection for understanding critical theory, the debates in it, including the criticisms, the criticism of social justice, warrior culture, um, race reductionism, you know, these various things. We, and again, as Nolan said before, we bring these in as models to discuss disagreements, right? We discuss disagreements between the 1619 Project and the 1776 Project, right? We discuss disagreements about class and race when it comes to, um, you know, things like violence or or crime or what understanding Black Lives Matter. We we also bring in 
conservative critiques, George Will, Thomas Sowell. Um, we talk about Jordan Peterson. We talk about Michael Rechtenwald. We talk about um, people on the left, like Brent Weinstein, who's an anarcho-syndicalist, who is very critical of performative wokeness and corporate woke culture and sort of the grifting nature of white fragility. So we bring it all into the mix and, and, and our, our objective isn't to tell the reader where they're supposed to be on that, on that dial. We're just telling them that it's okay to talk about it <laughs> and how we talk about it really matters. And it helps us understand not just you know, our own thinking, it helps us understand where each other are coming from. And dare we say, maybe we don't agree to disagree. We might actually begin to influence the way other people see the world and we may end up being influenced by them. And, you know, at the end of the day, um, there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. Just in the United States, we're conditioned to be kind of hyper-partisan, at odds, be very binary, right? And what Nolan and I are arguing in the book over and over and over again is that most of us live in the gray zone, right? And it's important to understand what that looks like. So is that sort of uh, what you mean? Um, with that With that section of the book, the, the other thing I wanted to cover was the I mean, there's two short uh, sections um, on critical theory within that that part of the book, um, co-optation, and then from co-optation to weaponization. So, what what do you guys mean by that in in reference to critical theory? Yeah, um, this actually came out of um, frustrations I've had with Jordan Peterson, of all people, um, and, and to a degree, actually Matt Taibbi later on, but I'll, I'll explain that. Um, I heard I, I would you know come across when doing some research on podcasting or just from students who would cite um, you know some of Ta Taibbi's work on Marcusa or um, Jordan Peterson. They would have and for people that don't know Marcusa and uh, and these figures are figures associated with the Frankfurt School, which is sort of the origin point for a lot of critical theory. The Frankfurt right. School, yeah, yeah, yes, 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 and. Um, they would have these critiques of the ways in which critical theory was being applied. And I would, I would share with the critiques, but what, what they sort of missed is that the way critical theory was being applied by the people they were critiquing usually was from like administrators and campus leaders, not like faculty and scholar scholars who are researching the topic. And what I mean by that is um, universities in particular are really good at co-opting the language of critical theory to uh, sell or make neoliberal policy more more digestible, um, and what I mean by that is like you know they say like we we want to have um, a more inclusive campus, more diversity, equity, and inclusion, and and who's really going to disagree with that, right? That's straight from this critical theory. We're going to have more representation to dismantle um, white supremacy. But, but in reality, what it does, it, it masks a, a meritocratic system in higher ed that, that privileges credentialed elites um, at the expense of everyone else. And it, and it disproportionately um, leads to like faculty of color being, you know, in temporary adjunct and contingent positions, et cetera. So what, what we were getting at with this critique is that not everybody who uses critical theory is necessarily using it for the liberation purposes of critical theory. There are people who are weaponizing the language to normalize policies that work against those very communities. Do you want to add to that at all, Mickey, or? Yeah, I can, just, uh, just a little bit. <clears throat> it's Some of the people we write about in the book, I mentioned Weinstein, who's from the left, and former left-wing uh, scholars, people like Michael Rechtenwald, who's kind of, kind of, you know, gone all the way to the other side, 
in some senses, this is historically like um, we start the book actually with people like Eldridge Cleaver. Um, you know, you could you, maybe David Horowitz comes to mind from Ramparts. People that were really far on the left that went through a transformative process and came out way on the other side. Um, and that's Eldridge because, Cleaver went from like uh, Black Panther to Republican. Republican running for Congress. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. I remember. I forget who it was. Which one of the um, one of the yippies ended up going through that too? Yeah. Uh, Jerry. I, I, I'm blanking on names, but. <laughs> yeah, you're right. And what well, we started with Cleaver, we started with a quote. Uh, Cleaver in 1965 wrote, the destiny of the entire human race depends on what's going on in America today. This is a staggering reality to the rest of the world. They must feel like passengers in a supersonic jetliner who are forced to watch helplessly while a passel of drunks, hypes, freaks, and madmen fight for controls in the pilot's seat. Um, <clears throat> is that today? Is that 1965? Um, but it, there seems to be, you know, some of these folks that have like really strong views and really strong ideas, they kind of they go through some period where um, they sort of run afoul of, of something. They run afoul of these purity tests and they kind of end up on the other side. Horowitz ended up, you know, from ramparts all the way on to the far right, you know, for example. But if you take a look within, you know, some of these critical theory debates, by the way, um, Nolan and I write in the book about critical race theory and, and, and mostly just most people didn't know what it is. Most people still don't know what it is, even though everybody seems to be talking about it and is an expert on it somehow. What we discover is most people talking about it, whether they think they're for it or against it, don't really understand what it actually is, which is, again, a way that it's been weaponized, right, by the right. Um, the right's not worried about people being taught it. They're just worried about people uh, voting in the midterms. Um, and as soon as that goes by, they'll pick some other bogeyman that they'll want to pick off the, you know, the low-hanging fruit to, to go after. But the reason we bring this up is like, so for example, even within this movement, it's very difficult for white academics or scholars to maybe criticize some of the um, sort of uh, race essentialism that goes on in certain, certain arguments. But take a look at Adolf Reed Jr., right? The African-American Marxist economist. He's accused of, of, of being a class reductionist because he talks about the intersectional nature of race and class being a real issue, whereas others want to focus on race only. So they would be called race reductionists, right? So what Nolan and I talk about is we talk about some of these more myopic conflicts that go on, but then we also talk about the general co-option and weaponization of these terms um, just in the general culture. You know, in the way that some of these folks like um, Robin DiAngelo, who wrote White Fragility, right, but best-selling book that's become sort of like a, a corporate blueprint right, for sort of like managing businesses to be anti-racist. Well, that kind well, of stuff- in, in a lot of ways that, it's interesting you mentioned the D'Angelo book, because I, I think uh, it, it's sort of become a way for uh, corporations to be like, oh, we had Robin D'Angelo at this- uh the box, event all good. Yeah. yeah. We're not yeah. racist anymore. Everything is fine. Um, well, it's even- but, it, Go ahead, I was gonna say, it's, yeah, I say, it's even a little more um, pernicious than that, because, um, and this is what I mean about the weaponization, right? Like, Critical theory posits that, uh, if, in terms of race, right, that that whites have created the structures that dominate society, and as a result, those structures disproportionately um, privilege whites at the expense of people of color. D'Angelo is a is a critical race scholar, but what she does in the workplace is she goes into one of the most powerful structures, i.e., corporate America, and lectures the working class people, some of the most underprivileged people within the corporation, on how their racism is the problem, 
Meanwhile, the people who are most benefiting from the racist society, i.e. the corporation, are paying her 40 grand. And so th this is what we mean about um, the co-optation of this language. And to, and to Mickey's point, it, it's so effective because if you, if you critique the ways in which this language is being used to actually um, uh, maintain the, the racist system of inequality, you're called the racist um, by the by the neoliberal. That so that's the weaponization that we get into in the text. So the the last thing I wanted to touch upon, and I'm going to have to explain uh, where I'm coming from on this, but uh, it's funny because I read this book right after reading uh, this book called How to Lose a Disinfo War, and I, I only read it because she's been in the news lately. It was written by this woman uh, Mia Jankovics, who is uh, now become known for. Uh, heading up this disinformation governance board. And I'm skeptical of that disinformation governance board uh, that the Department of Homeland Security is doing. But it was really interesting reading the book because uh, she she's kind of thoughtful in, in, in some regards because she'll say past times that we've tried this, it's led to activists being targeted wrongly. Or, um, you know, she'll point out that, you know, you're really not going to fix everything just by uh shutting down alternative media websites she even says at one point you have to dialogue with people you disagree with um but the one thing that i think sets maybe your book apart from what she's saying is i don't think mia jankovitz ever goes um and says hey maybe we need to look at this issue of corporate media bias um and i you know i was i, I wanted to get into that what why is it so important we still look at things like the ideas that were put forth by Chomsky and Herman in manufacturing consent, because I think a lot of people um, have lost that, that sort of understanding of how uh, corporate media has its own biases. Yeah, absolutely. hundred percent. It still does. And implies to big tech. It applies to social media. It applies to shifting definitions of censorship by proxy. Um, <clears throat> you know, Ed Herman, before he passed away, one of the last things he wrote was something for Project Censored that was the propaganda model at 30. And we asked him, um, Ed, how relevant is the propaganda model 30 years after you and Chomsky wrote about it? And he said, well, it's entirely relevant. And nobody has debunked it. Nobody has successfully argued against the model. And in fact, uh, as Nolan has written, people like Christian Fuchs and others have actually expanded the uh, propaganda model to include other filters, AI, bots, algorithms, shadow banning, you know, a whole raft of new ways to control information. And, you know, back to this governance board, right? The disinformation governance board that has incredible Orwellian mini true overtones, right? We're going to go hire a bunch of Winston Smiths to memory hole everything. Well, the government doesn't need to memory hole things, JG, because we've got YouTube doing it. It's a private company and they have community standards and they can disappear all of RT America, eight years of Lee Camp, six years of Abby Martin, Pulitzer Prize winner, uh, Chris Hedges, bye-bye, your show's gone. Roku and DirecTV can just yank things off the cable server so that you can't subscribe to it. The government didn't violate the first amendment. Corporations are just taking these things offline and many people are cheering it, right? Many people, many liberals even are cheering it on. So. It's very important to understand the insidious nature of corporate censorship and corporate control. It's very important to understand who these people are that are uh, on these boards. Who are these fact checkers at NewsGuard? Who are the fact checkers at TikTok? There are people from industry. There are people from the CIA. There are people from the defense industry. There are people from the military industrial surveillance complex. They are not neutral observers. They're not goody two-shoes singing jingles about things like 
um, like this person is about, you know, how, how we need to police certain kinds of information. And isn't it fun to censor information about Russia and Ukraine? Um, no, it's not. And we need to be ever more vigilant now about the propaganda model and the ways in which corporations are censoring, curating, and shaping news and information that we see. They are now openly calling for it to be curated and censored. And now in this governance board, the government is essentially saying that they're going to have a right to decide what is and isn't disinformation when it is one of the biggest stakeholders in the curating of narratives. Yeah, and this one, um, that issue of um, power is so essential to our, our book here. Um, what I, the mistake I would, I would argue a lot of people make when they get into debates about the disinformation board is they start saying like, well, do you think white supremacist content should be on there? Do you think terrorist content should be on a social media platform? And of course my answer is, is no, in my ideal world that content doesn't exist. But, but the question I'm more concerned with is less about the existence of the content and more about who am I going to empower to determine which content I can and can't see. So my, my retort to people is, okay, you, you don't want that content. Do you trust government to do it? Do you trust private industry to do it? And another area of complication I think is worth reflecting upon is some people hide behind the, well, these are private companies. This is not government. And the First Amendment only protects government. Well, that's true, but I would point people to the fact that there, there is not a lot of separation between our government and big tech. Um, and this, one way you can see this is the revolving door. I mean, like Chuck Schumer's daughter at Facebook, all the Obama team who went into Silicon Valley once he left office and now have come back um, during the Biden years. But even more so than that, these big tech companies are using public um, research. This is the Silicon Valley comes from the surveillance state. That's how this was developed. And they have contracts to share data and allow the federal government to analyze data. Just a couple of weeks ago, Joe Biden said, Amazon, we're coming for you. And labor activists were clapping their hands. Well, I guess when he said coming for you, he meant a $10 billion contract, which the NSA just gave to Amazon within the last two weeks. So it's, it's really tough to say where private industry ends and government begins when we talk about these issues. And I think that's the much more like... Uh, a much more effective way of talking about it that takes in that power analysis of why critical theory is so important. No, not only that, um, if I could just for a second, not only that, but like even, I mean, based on what I've read um, about the Disinformation Governance Board and, and who's heading it up based on her writings, I almost feel like it's not going to be able to do much, at least under Biden, or that she doesn't really, she doesn't seem to have many, you know, I think great ideas, uh, but to me, it's like that can be very dangerous, uh, you know, with successive administrations, even if it's not a problem now. And I think people don't uh, consider that enough. It's a problem the minute someone thought of it, <clears throat> because as soon as someone thought of it, they decided to do it. And you know who who thought about doing that stuff? Eddie Bernays, right? Going all the way back to World War One and the 1920s and propaganda when he talks about capable and well, you know, well-intentioned, well-educated men who will pull the wires that control the public mind, the public relations industry, the people we don't see that make the determinations about what you actually end up seeing and what you end up buying or what ideas you end up debating. You know, those hundred year old ideas are alive and well. With something like the, the, govern, the governing board, that's really in your face. And it really just shows that if they're actually this public about it, 
think about the ways in which they control dialogue and control information and censor information when they're not telling you about it, right? I mean, that's, that's kind of the gauge. If, if, if this kind of censorship is so pervasive in the present where we can just point fingers everywhere and see it, we are in a very censorious period. The irony is that the GOP and the right are censoring books willy-nilly and liberals are saying, we can't ban books. We have to protect books. We have to protect people's right to know. But then this is the same administration that's supporting a disinformation governance board. Um, you know, yeah, it might be all fun and games because you're censoring some kid in a basement who thinks that there's a pedophile ring at the local pizza joint. Um, but on the other end of that spectrum, there's somebody doing serious research about gain of function and Fauci's investments in labs around the around the world, or you know, 15 bio labs in Ukraine that that, that we were invested in. Who again? Back to Nolan. <clears throat> when you start setting the precedent that somebody somewhere has an unaccountable ability, they'll tell me what I'm allowed to know. You're gonna run into trouble, and that's how populations are controlled. And it's very difficult for us to imagine, um, actually just how deep this goes, right? Because everything is on our phones, everything is digital on our computers, everything is tracked. We are the best product for these tech companies. They're gonna harvest our data, they're gonna use it to make our lives convenient, but they're also gonna use it to marshal us, to determine what we think we're making decisions about. And ultimately, right, when we, what we saw with lockdowns and mandates, they're actually going to be able to have passports to determine who gets to function in society to what degree and who does not. And that is an incredibly Orwellian and Huxleyan uh, juxtaposition that I think we would be right to heed people like Neil Postman's warnings um, because that society is very much upon us right now. And the decisions that we're making as a society now are really gonna shape what the next generation looks like. And I have to tell you from, right, from where I'm sitting and from where Nolan and I wrote this book, um, it doesn't look good. And that's why we want people to try to use the best practices in this book is because we do think it could go another way. It could go another direction, but we have to help shape and guide it. So is there anything either of you want to say um, in closing? And like I said, I, I really appreciate this book because I, like I said, um, I, I've, I've sort of been reading stuff that I disagree with lately. I mentioned the Jankovic's uh, book. And, uh, you know, I think I'm better off for having read it. Now I sort of see what her ideas are, even if I disagree with them. Um, so it, it's, I think it's important that we do engage with things, um, if only to get better at, at debating and to get better at um, questioning ourselves and also uh, questioning those views that we disagree with. Yeah, I think that's well, well said. Um, and that's, you know, one of the things we hope people take away from the text, right? Oh, Mickey brought this up earlier, that so much of our media creates um, characters of quote unquote other side. So when we actually are confronted with having to talk to someone from that other side, we only know how to respond to the character. We don't really understand who's in front of us. And so any opportunity you can make, whether it be reading something you disagree with or what we advocate for in the text, listening to someone, um, there's a lot you can learn. So you can learn how to better communicate with that person. And I think I want to make sure that the folks know, and this is an optimistic text that primarily we designed for the classroom, but, but anybody can use, and we encourage parents and community members um, to pick up the text. We, we want it to be used. We want it to be used widely. And 
in that use, you know, we want folks to to understand a couple of things. Um, one is we can't block and censor away the people we disagree with. If you're a liberal, I'm sorry to inform you, conservatives are going to be around forever. And if you're a conservative, I'm sorry to inform you, liberals are going to be around forever. Um, the, the question um, put before us is how do we create a democratic system that allows for all of us to exist peaceably? And that's what this book is really trying to get us to, to focus upon. The goal is to create a peaceful society where we can coexist, hopefully for the benefit and progress of everyone. Um, but that takes us all doing work. And so I know some people will will listen to this podcast and say, like, who is this guy to tell me I need to do work? I, I hate to tell you this, but democracy is a 24 hour a day job. You need to be working around the clock. If you're looking for someone else to make these decisions for you and censor content for you and make policy for you, you're in luck. There's authoritarians around the world who are looking for docile bodies to join them. But in democracy, you have to work 24-7 to build coalitions, change minds, organize, and most importantly, keep your mind open. Um, Nikki and I talk about this all the time. We try and document all the times we've changed our minds. People bring up new evidence. They make us reflect. They change our worldview. That's a good thing. That's a sign of a whole person and a strong democracy. Yeah, and I would just add, that's a fantastic uh, note to end on. We actually, you know, we practice what we teach right? <clears throat> Nolan and I are teachers. We're not preachers. Um, and the activist world, a lot of those lines blur. And for us, you know, one of the things we've encountered on, on campuses is <clears throat> there's a lot of groupthink. You know, I mean, you've got the professional managerial class on one end, but then you've got the liberal intelligentsia as well. And there, it's a bubble, you know? You know, we talk about the Fox News bubble and Fox News brainwashed my dad and whatever that is, you know? But if you take a look, you know, there's a lot of professors, a lot of academics that, you know, skew liberal and, you know, they they watch CNN and MSNBC. And to them, there's no debate about Russia, Ukraine. There is no complexity or nuances about about NATO or uh, petrodollar or, you know, it just it's either one thing or another. And so what Nolan and I want to do is is really remind people that it's OK not just okay to disagree about things, but we learn from each other when we do it. I want to know why the people I disagree with are saying the things that they're saying. And I want to be able to teach my students why it matters to hear other people out and to hear them as best as possible and be aware of our own cognitive and implicit biases, right? So by the time we get to the end of this book, JG, we have something called Let's Get Critical, where the word critical, each letter is a, it will stand for one of the things that we want you to do with best practices. And I think this is a great place to end. We want to create constructive dialogue. We wanna reflect on our communication flat practices. We wanna to inquire to be critical thinkers. We wanna test theory and spot ideology. We wanna be aware of them. We wanna investigate and evaluate the mass media. We wanna critique the content. We wanna be able to understand fake news propaganda. We also wanna be able to see what ethical journalism looks like. We talk about all this in the book. We also wanna assess, analyze, and evaluate digital media use and abuse. How are we being used? How are ways that we can mitigate our social media use to be less harmful? And then finally, we wanna lead by example. No one said democracy is not a spectator sport. It's something we've gotta do, it's a verb. And so in this book, Let's Agree to Disagree by Rutledge, we basically provide what we think is a roadmap for the best practices to think critically, to communicate constructively, 
to manage our conflicts in productive ways and to become more critically media literate citizens. And we, we hope that people will find the book as useful when they're reading it and using it as we found writing it. You know, we actually had a really good time writing this and we really challenged ourselves and spread our ourselves, you know, broadly to really try to get different things in this book that we wanted people to think about. Well, I want to thank you again, Nolan Higdon and Mickey Huff for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone check out the book, Let's Agree to Disagree, a critical thinking guide to communication, conflict management, and critical media literacy. And also, uh, Mickey, if you could, uh, what, what is going on with um, Project Censored? You have the Project Censored radio show still, and I think uh, Eleanor uh, Goldfield is, is working with you now. Eleanor Goldfield is our co-host. She'll be back later in May. Project Censored show on 12 years now. It's on over 50 stations, Pacifica Radio, out of KPFA in Berkeley. We're on WBAI in New York. We're on from Hawaii to New York. Um, Nolan's a regular guest on the program. Nolan's had a number of great op-eds out, most recently in the Progressive Magazine, about we don't need a governing disinformation board. What we need is critical media literacy education. And he mentions Project Censored, Critical Media Project, um, the great work that ACME does, Mass Media Lit. So, you know, we're still at it, JG. We are, uh, we have the Censored Press. Um, We started our own publishing imprint. We've got five books coming out over the next year on that, including a media literacy book for young people that Nolan co-authored with us with eight other authors. Um, The Censored State of the Free Press 2022 is out. Andy and I are, Andy Roth and I are writing the next book right now. Um, No dull moments. You know, we've got a whole team of us that are out and about and, um, we're fighting censorship in its many guises, you know, and we're trying to promote critical media literacy education. And if you want to learn more, go to projectcensored.org and you can find a lot of Nolan's work uh, with us as well. Next up, John Duffy joins us to discuss his new documentary podcast series, Origins Birth of a Pandemic, which tackles the question of the lab leak hypothesis in regards to COVID-19, I myself have sort of remained agnostic on this subject, even skeptical in many ways of the lab leak hypothesis, but I think that this was a rather interesting conversation, regardless of where you stand on the issue, and I appreciate John's work on other topics, such as 9-11 and the death of Donye Jones, as covered in his previous podcast series, After the Uprising. So with all that in mind, let's get right to the conversation with John Duffy on his podcast series, Origins, Birth of a Pandemic. Welcome back to Parallax Views. I guess we've had on the show number of times now, I think this is uh, our third uh, talk together. John Duffy, uh, co-author of uh, The Watchdogs Don't Bark, and also um, uh, work on a number of podcasts, including the one we're going to be talking about today, Origins, Birth of a Pandemic. And also, did I get the title of, of the Watchdog book, uh, Watchdog's book right? Because I, I always... Mix up it's watch and didn't. Yeah, it is didn't. Ah. And if people are looking for it, there's like a very long subtitle, which is like CIA, NSA, and the crimes of the war on terror. 
that's what they like when you write a book. They want you to get that short snippy title and then like 400 words explaining the whole book. <laughs> so I want to talk about this uh, pandemic podcast that you have. Uh, you know, it, it's interesting for me because uh, this podcast deals with the lab leak hypothesis. And I've been myself wary of the lab leak hypothesis, although I've, I've had people on the show and have had people I respect like Sam Husseini and um, Nina Burley who uh, are more open to the lab leak. So I'm, I'm at least willing to hear it out. I, I felt like uh, it got very politicized very quickly in a way that made me uncomfortable. Uh, but what led you to sort of want to look at this angle of the COVID story? So I started off when COVID was becoming a thing, caring more about the like the physiology of the virus and how it worked in people's bodies because I'm kind of a health nut and like I I already just because I'm a dork read a lot of scientific literature on like diet and exercise and stuff like that. So I was reading a lot about the virus itself, and you know, the months went on and I ended up catching maybe like a year into it something that was written uh, by Jonathan Latham, Dr. Jonathan Latham uh, from the bioscience and uh, Bioscience Resource Institute. I want to choke on those words. And he also has, uh, with his partner, Dr. Allison Wilson, uh, a publication called um, Independent Science News. And he had written this whole thing about the Mojang miners, uh, and they had this hypothesis that the virus may have partially or totally evolved in the lungs of these men. Now, this is in the Yunnan province in 2012, right? Yes, yes, I, I can go. I can get into that. So basically, what happened was, and he had written this long thing, and it gave me a lot of good context and made me go, "Wow, this is a great story." Uh, but basically, in 2012, these six men in Yunnan province, China, were sent into this mine in the Mojang Prefecture, and it was an abandoned copper mine. But they were going to go back and start mining it. But so there's these mine shafts in there and they're just full of bat, like bats and shrews and all kinds of stuff and um, the, the huge bat colonies in there. And they've been shitting in there for years and it's just piling up, right? Wanted. So tons of it, right? Like, and so they got to get it out of the way. And so they send these six guys in from a small town and they're not wearing PPE or anything. They're just in there with shovels and picks and they're hacking away and they're clearing this tunnel. Well, they're doing this for a couple of weeks, many hours a day when all, all of them, all six of them start getting very, very ill. And all of them are ho uh, ultimately hospitalized. Uh, some are older, some are younger. And in the end, three of the six die. And at the time, it's not like this wasn't thought about till later. There's a lot of focus on these men at that time because they end up going to a university hospital and multiple people who are involved in treating them go on to write one of them is a master's student who writes his master's thesis on it. Another is a PhD student who writes his PhD thesis on it. And there's a lot of interest from the national government and from around uh, different cities in China where different doctors are doing teleconferencing in. And uh, even Zongnan Shen, who is the hero of the first SARS pandemic, or it wasn't really a pandemic, but the first SARS outbreak, SARS-1 in, uh, in Guangdong, China, uh, Zongnan Shen was the one who realized, look, we got to treat this with corticosteroids. He went against the grain, went against official CCP recommendations for how to treat people. And he ends up saving a lot of lives. His treatment gets spread around China and it really makes SARS-1 not a big deal. So the fact that they're calling him in, teleconferencing him going, hey, check these guys out. What do you think? Starts to show you that, yes, there's a definite suspicion that they're dealing with a SARS-like virus. 
uh, in these men at the time. A bunch of samples get taken from these men. A thymus is removed from one of them. Uh, blood, uh, you know, blood samples are taken. Swabs are taken, and all of this gets sent to labs uh, around the country, including the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And that's sort of where the trail starts and then moves on from there. So in regards to what I said, I mean, I'm, I'm assuming you can at least appreciate where I'm coming from in that I, I was very, very uncomfortable with how this whole issue was politicized <laughs> early on. And I, I think some of the ways that people have talked about the lab leak hypothesis have have at times been in service of political agendas. I don't think that's true of uh, necessarily people like Sam Husseini and others that have talked about it, but I, I was wondering if you could uh, comment on that concern. Because I know scientists have talked about that as well. Well, yeah, I mean, quite frankly, there's absolutely no reason to try to hunt down where a pandemic came from. There's absolutely no reason to not try to answer that question. And with SARS-1 and with MERS, they answered that question pretty quickly. And those viruses never went pandemic, right? And so it's like, you wouldn't not try to figure it out. And in doing so, why would you take one potential answer off the table immediately and say, no, it can't be that. Now let's look over here. That makes no sense. You go, okay, we have a problem. It's becoming a big problem. We don't want this problem to repeat itself. So why don't we figure out where the problem started? You know, like that's just simple. There's nothing political about that, but of course it got political a lot of that probably had to do with, you know, Donald Trump being president of the United States at the time. And, and, and I don't know, maybe it's just the current context of our era where like every freaking, can I swear? Sorry, because I might. Um, every it, 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 it may be best if we don't swear because I have to keep up I'll with try not Spotify's to. roles every, and whatnot. Yeah, every gosh darn thing that happens in our culture these days, like it's just immediately people take sides and then like it's not even all people take sides like a handful of influencers take sides and then they spread what the official side is for their team on twitter and then everyone just goes okay that's the thing i i I won't even consider the other thing the other thing is just for the dumb people on the other side and it's like this is not how intelligent adults deal with problems especially one that's like a global issue that's wrecking economies harming a lot of people killing people, causing all these knock-on effects we're going to be dealing with for years, why wouldn't we want to just calm down and get to the bottom of it? And, and the thing is, with this particular problem, you cannot deny that there's a massive coincidence that all the SARS-like coronavirus research is being done, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and the bat reservoir for the virus is a thousand kilometers away, and you have to come up with an answer for how the virus comes from there and gets to Wuhan and starts spreading in Wuhan. The bats aren't there. Now you can say maybe it's agriculture, maybe it's people bring tra- like transporting the animals, but you have to show that, right? The coincidence is evident. No one can deny the coincidence. If you say it's not a coincidence, you're just lying to yourself. Now you could say it is only a coincidence and that there is an actual uh, chain of events that is you know, rational that we can explain and prove, but then go ahead and do that. China's not been able to do that. No one in the world has been able to do that. And despite looking for far longer than they ever had to look to explain SARS-1 or MERS. Well, I think there's also a difference between, I mean, there's some people that, that have said, I think it was an accidental lab leak as an origin. And there's other people that have gone more in a direction of uh, 
this was like a deliberate bioweapon, you know, that sort of Alex Jones sort of um, take. What do you make of all that? I mean, there's there's no reason to even go there. It, like, that's just as bad as doing the other thing where you just deny that it's even possible. And like, you had me on the talk about Watchdog State and Bark. I don't know why I keep diving into topics like this, but you know, it's like it's like the 9-11 thing, right? It's like some people want to look at it like it was just wackadoodle terrorists and there's nothing to see with the U.S. intelligence agencies, the FBI or any of them, nothing to see. Don't even bother looking at it. And then there's other people who on the way other side are like, this was clearly entirely orchestrated by like the CIA and the Illuminati. And they start saying things like there weren't even any planes. There were no planes. You know, it's like, oh, my yeah, gosh, that, can we just not uh, go say, to like the most ridiculous extremes? Right, right. And, well, well, that's the that's the thing that would get me is, you know, I, I've met, you know, a few yahoos, uh, usually usually at bars and social gatherings that are like, we must punish China. They deliberately create a bioweapon. We should bomb China. And I'm like, first off, that's probably not going to happen and it would probably end very badly. Uh, but, you know, that sort of sets off my red flags. I think that kind of talk is, is like crazy. But the accidental lab leak stuff, I, I think maybe you could argue that that's in a different category. Lab leaks happen all the time. And I, I read in episode, the beginning of episode two of Origins, I read a long quote from a journalist, um, oh God, Allison Young, and she did this deep investigation in 2015 into just, you know, bio leaks at labs, uh, you know, in the United States and around the world. And she, you find tons of them. And it, like SARS-1 leaked from a lab multiple times after its natural origin, you know, when they were studying it in labs, it leaked from labs multiple times. There was just a recent leak of SARS-2 in a lab, you know, like it's, these things are not uncommon. So to suggest that it's just like totally out of the question is not based in reality at all. Like this stuff happens just fortunately, a lot of the times it doesn't become an, like a, a Chernobyl. You know, most of the time when this happens, it's very localized and contained and it doesn't become a global event. But, it, it, you know, it, the more we do this, the more labs we have around the world, the more we go into the remote places uh, of the world and find bizarre viruses and bring them back to the lab and passage them and experiment on them and swap out pieces for other pieces. The more we do that, you're just rolling the dice over and over and over again. And eventually something like this, it's, it's not crazy to suggest that this could totally happen. With regards to, since we've already mentioned uh, the watchdogs didn't bark, can we relate any issues of biosafety to the sort of war on terror and the and the 9-11 era? Because I know um, Lori Garrett, who I, I think is, is not in favor of the lab leak hypothesis, but who has talked about issues related to biosafety, has said that there were issues with how the Bush administration wanted to handle biosafety in light of um, anthrax. And, and you know, I, I think there's been issues around secrecy and bio labs in, in the U.S. since 9-11. Yeah, 100 percent. Most of these labs didn't even exist before 9-11. The interest in biosec biosecurity as a thing popped up after 9-11 because then everyone, you know, and the DOD and all these places started, get, you know, being able to bring their worst nightmares to the attention of, you know, their higher ups. And there was just a 
free flow of money to do anything that was revolving uh, around safety and counterterrorism. So this idea that someone would bring in like a smallpox virus or something like that, it's like, oh, we, we got to be on this. So the, yeah, tons of new labs, higher biosecurity uh, level labs were opened uh, in the wake of 9-11. So it's, it was part of the opening of the Pandora's box. Now, some of these labs did exist before then, but a bunch of new money came into it, a bunch of new interest. And that does tie to the, this very story because if you look at some of the documents that have come out since uh, this has all unfolded, a whistleblower gave this DARPA proposal to Drastic. So if the audience doesn't know, Drastic is this, on, this um, autonomous collective of various researchers and scientists around the world who've been trying to get to the bottom of where SARS-CoV-2 came from. And a whistleblower handed over this proposal. It was a proposal to DARPA, which is the defense you know, uh, part of the DOD that does uh, R&D for, you know, defense projects. And it was a proposal for $14.2 million submitted by Peter Daszak's EcoHealth Alliance to do a I lot of- I wanted to get into Daszak, um, but go on, go on. Yeah. And what, what he basically is suggesting they do there is a lot of work re regarding bat coronaviruses, but very specifically mentioned in there is putting a furin cleavage site into a SARS-like virus. And the furin cleavage site is very important to understand because it's this piece of the genome in SARS-CoV-2 that is unique to SARS-CoV-2 amongst all SARS-like coronaviruses. Now there's the coronavirus taxonomy is very large. There's alpha coronaviruses, beta coronaviruses, and um, you know, it, there's a lot of different clades within them. And, but within the SARS-like coronaviruses, none have this thing called a furin cleavage site, which is a thing that allows for better binding uh, to the cell. It, like, it's, it's where like these, um, this group of proteins that allow proteases to like snip off the spike so it can bind, uh, so it can bind. And they're proposing in 2018, hey, we want to do this. We want to we attach one of these things to the SARS-like virus. And then that proposal sure is denied uh, on the basis of the, the DOD finding that it's like, well, this looks like some really intense gain of function uh, research that also has potential uh, dual use. And it also doesn't look like you have a, a pandemic preparedness sort of plan for it. So that's why they denied it. But just because that proposal was denied doesn't mean they weren't doing that work. It just means DARPA wasn't funding it. And it clearly shows their intention and desire to do this. And we see the other documents of the other experiments they did where they combined different pieces of different uh, viruses and made SARS-like viruses more uh, contagious and, and more able to infect human cells. So yes, there's this defense component because a lot of defense money goes into virology. And it's very weird because like, you know, Peter Dajak's EcoHealth Alliance is collecting money from uh, the defense sector, he's collecting it from uh, the, the conservation sector, the human health sector, and then it all kind of goes into this big pool where they do experiments working with, you know, labs around the world, but yeah, labs in China that also do work for the Chinese military. So there's a lot of weird crossover between like the science and human health space and the military space and the security space. And it, it bio gets defense. really, biodefense, it gets really hairy. Yeah, and I, I was going to say, since I mentioned uh, Laurie Garrett, uh, you know, one of the things she has talked about um, when interviewed about some of this stuff is that, you know, e even if you look at the Biological Weapons Convention, 
you know, people close to the issue, regardless of where they stand on COVID, kind of view this as needing to be put under review, the Biological Weapons Convention, because it was drafted before, you know, basically we had modern DNA theory before the, the genome sequencing. So, you know, I, I think there is like a lot of these issues that exist with biosafety, uh, you know, just in the U.S. and globally, regardless of how what, what one thinks was the origin of COVID. And I, I want to get more into uh, Eco Health Alliance and Peter Dysek now, uh, because I know Sam Husseini has talked about that a lot. What are the sort of conflicts of interest at work uh, more in depth? His conflicts of interest are insane. The fact that he has ever been questioned about his opinion, the fact that they still ask him his opinion is mind boggling. And it goes to show just how captured media is where it's like, well, he's the acceptable source to talk. He was like, the man has everything to lose if this turns out to have been a lab leak. He's built his career uh, going off as a virus hunter and uh, working with places like the Wuhan Institute of Virology, working with people like Xi Zheng Li, calls these caves like our caves. You know, his uh, amount of fundraising to finance this kind of work. Right now, he's, he's, go, he's running around the world trying to collect like over a billion dollars for something called the Global Virum Project. If it turns out that this kind of work caused the greatest pandemic we've known in a century, like that all gets shut down. But I would, I would say that I would echo uh, journalist Paul Thacker, who I interview on the, sh- uh, on the Origins show, who says like, look, all virologists have a conflict of interest. Now, of course, Peter Dajax is really like very direct very uh, um, easy to spot the fact that he has monies flowing back and forth through him and, and his labs. But all virology really has egg on its face if it turns out that this was a, a lab leak, even if it's an accident. Even, you know, it's like the same way after like a Chernobyl or a Fukushima, all the people who say that like nuclear power is safe have egg on their face. And they go, oh, they, like any accident makes their whole industry look bad. So people who are earning their living, who for the last 30 years have earned their living, who are publishing papers, who are, you know, trying to build up university departments around this kind of work, desperately don't want that to be the case in the end. Now, some have more credit to, you know, credibility in that they're willing to like ask, call for an investigation. You know, there are people who signed on to like the open letter in science saying, no, we need to, we need to find out good, bad, ugly, no matter what, we need to find out where this came from. And there, there are some who, to their credit, are, are saying we need to do that. But if you look behind the scenes at the emails that have been shared uh, between, you know, Dr. Fauci and a variety of different uh, virologists at the outset of this, the people who were signing on to the Lancet letter uh, back in, you know, what, March of 2020, or was that April of 2020? Sorry, some of my dates are a little off. But uh, there was such an effort to control the narrative in early 2020 and spring of 2020. And you had Jeremy Farrar in the UK, who's from the Wellcome Trust, and he funds, you know, that trust funds, it's a charity that funds a lot of scientific research over there. You had virologists in Australia and the United States and Europe, all communicating on, on video teleconference and through emails. And as some of this has come out after a lot of FOIA requests, you see them talking in private, like, hey, this, this could be from a lab and then in public going anyone who says that's crazy you know and, and very interestingly with people like christian anderson amongst other virologists who were saying this looks like it could be from a lab in their emails like hey 
we've been talking, we virologists been talking and we, we have to look at the genome carefully, but some of this looks kind of hinky. And then three days later, after they're all pulled into a big video teleconference call with all these high muckety mucks in scientific uh, financing and funding, three days later, they're all like, ah, nothing to see here. It's uh, anyone who says it's from a lab is a crazy person. And, and like, you have to wonder, what are they told in, call, uh, in these backroom calls if their opinion can change so hard in three days when they've had absolutely no time to do the due diligence they said needs doing? Now, you also mentioned gain of function, and I, I think you briefly there mentioned um, what's been called dual-use research of concern. Um, what are those, and, and maybe we could delve into what those terms mean more deeply. So with gain of function research, the people who are really concerned about it are not necessarily concerned with any gain of function research. They're, confer- they're concerned with gain of function research and pathogens with pandemic potential. So, you know, maybe there's some legitimate reason to go farting around with a pathogen that doesn't infect human beings and the function it's trying to gain is really esoteric and like most people wouldn't understand. It has nothing to do with like infectiousness or, you know, can, or uh, its uh, ability to harm or kill. But the concern of, of groups like the Cambridge Working Group that has been around for like seven years now Uh, that contain a lot of scientists and researchers is that we shouldn't be doing work that uses uh, pathogens that have a pandemic potential, things that infect human beings, that we should not be making them more infectious in human beings. We should not be making them more virulent in human beings. That's just dangerous work. And like, if they don't exist in nature, why would we create these new threats when we know lab leaks are common and that they happen? Like you're basically inventing problems that don't exist why would we do that and it's very dangerous and even if you get away with it for you know 9999 times out of 10,000 like that one time there's a screw up the potential for there to be a really massive problem is too great a burden to bear and and so that's really the, the, the crux there with gain of function and of course the big issue became was that happening with SARS-like viruses uh, at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, and were we funding it? And the answer is yes, we were funding it. And that doesn't necessarily mean we funded the creation of SARS-CoV-2, but it gets really weird when you start sending money to places like, because there's not a lot of great accounting on like which money is funding which day and which experience. You're just funding someone's salary to do one thing, but then they're also getting paid to go do another thing. It's like, did you fund it? I, I don't know. Um, we can say confidently, yes, that the United States through the National Institutes of Health funded gain-of-function research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now, does that mean we caused, that funding caused SARS-CoV-2? There's a lot less evidence to say that's true, but it's still something that we should just fess up and admit to, which took a long time to finally get the National Institutes of Health to fess up and admit to, and they finally did but only after Anthony Fauci went in front of the Congress multiple times and lied about it and played a lot of word games and and said things like, you know, I had exploits up and down the chain, look at this. And they said, it's not, you don't know what you're talking about. And, and that was just a bunch of bullshit. 
and you know, again, a nice 9-11 parallel is, you know, some of the lies that were told by people like George Tenet to the congressional investigators that just went unpunished. Who thinks Fauci's going to get punished for his lies? I don't. Like, he's just going to walk because people like him get to walk. Can we talk a little bit more about Fauci? Because I, I think it's hard to talk about a character like Anthony Fauci, because I, I think there are certain people that have almost treated um, Fauci as like this saint-like figure. Um, and it it's become hard to even discuss any of this in a way that's like not emotionally charged. So could you talk a little bit more about the issues you have with Fauci? You know, mainly the fact that he brazenly has lied about several things, including about the funding of gain of function research, which, I mean, he could easily have just said like, yeah, you know, we, we do fund that and we found value in it. We thought there was value to it. We did, but we still like, let's split the hair. I don't believe we funded the creation of this particular pandemic virus. He could have easily said that, but he didn't. And maybe he was just unaware. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't recall every piece of paper yeah, that's ever passed in front of his eyes. It, it's interesting but, for, not to interrupt you, but it's interesting for me at times, because I, I think what you're talking about is different from, I've seen some people criticize Fauci because, oh, he said this in the eighties about this subject. And I'm like, well, you know, any scientist's opinions will evolve over time. Like that's sort of how science works. But I think what you're talking about is, is a more pointed criticism. Well, it's very pointed. Well, it's multi-layered because there's, there's the stuff he's testified about. There's the fact that he very much ran cover for the potential of a lab leak, right? Like I say, we've now gotten FOIA requests of his emails and we have seen him discussing the lab leak uh, hypothesis and working with other people to diminish that, the, the possibility that that will be taken seriously. So the fact that he is deciding at the outset of the pandemic that that's just not possible, we're not going to talk about that. And he's basically instructing virologists who and, and biologists who depend on him for funding uh, that, like, look, this is the line we're going to take. And these people are basically like, well, if I go against this guy right now, say goodbye to my career. Sorry. Say goodbye to my career down the line. Uh, if I go against him, but that it's not even just that we just found out that he uh, was talking with Francis Collins about how to shut down the, the idea of the great Barrington declaration, the great Barrington declaration. If people don't know, was this idea by a lot of different, uh, you know, uh, epidemiologists from, you know, highly regarded universities like Harvard, Stanford, and Oxford, who said, listen, the approach to the pandemic shouldn't be to lock everybody down and to shut down everybody everywhere. If we know who's vulnerable, we can look and see who's actually really vulnerable. And what we should do is focus protection and let everyone else go about their lives. And the fact that we weren't even allowed to have that discussion and that Fauci was behind the scenes with Francis Collins and others going like, we need to nip this in the bud. We need to make these people seem crazy. They're calling them fringe, you know, fringe epidemiologists. They wouldn't allow the public to have this debate to go like, well, what, what do we want the approach to be? And, and then beyond that, the things with Fauci, where he just is, he's just going in the media all the time saying contradictory and conflicting things. So even if you erase what he did behind the scenes and if you erase his lying to the to the congress even just as like a public spokes figure for like pandemic response 
he's just confusing. Like you could do a mashup of him saying this thing and this thing and this thing, like herd immunity would be here. If we all, if we get 70% vaccinated, there won't be a fall wave. And he's just wrong and then wrong and then wrong. And then he's going left. He's going right. He's going left. He's going right. And just, and people just don't know what to make at any given time about what the hell is going on. Yeah. I, I get that. But at the same time, isn't, isn't some of that just going to be the result of, we don't know as much about, uh, the virus at the beginning and our, you know, we may say one thing I mean, early on that we think is true and then our opinions evolve or the science evolves cha- on it. Well, I don't think so. Number one, you can, the words I don't know are acceptable. You know, the, the, for him to say like, it seems as though uh, our feelings right now are this, but we're very cautious to make long-term prognostications. These words all exist and we can all use them. He always comes off sounding confident, making like statements as if he, he says things like, I am the science. Questioning me is questioning the science TM. There is no such thing as the science. And the fact is across this entire pandemic, any scientist who's got a, an opinion contrary to the narrative that we're allowed to accept is basically just told, oh, you're not a scientist. You don't count. You're, you're, an, you're, you're not an expert. I'm an expert. I'm the one who says it's, it's not science. Science is constant questioning. Science is constantly trying to falsify one's own beliefs. Science can get upturned by one really good study. You can flip a hundred years of, of supposed knowledge with the right study that, that does it right and finds a new piece of knowledge or a new piece of information. So, you know, he could easily be in the media less and go in like and use that time to come in with more, you know, more confident approaches after more research. And then on things he does not know, go, look, we're going to try this because we think X should accomplish Y. It's not 100 percent, but right now it's the best we got. And like, you know, it, that's OK. Yeah, I, I was going to say that is, I think, one of the big lessons of the pandemic is that, you know, I think people expect it well, we need all the answers now and everything, you know, we need to speak confidently about everything. And it's not, science just doesn't work like that. And I'm surprised that more, sometimes I think people don't understand that. <laughs> and and you're right. I mean, we probably shouldn't have spoken as confidently about a lot of things as people like Fauci have. Um, it, well, and stifled debate and the people like, just like the lab leak, every little angle of the pandemic became political. It was like, if you were a Democrat or a liberal or on the left in any way, you had to believe that masks worked and like double masking was great. Like, despite looking at trends of where the virus went up and down and where mask mandates were put in, like, there was no allow allowance for discussion or like like educated debate to just go like, OK, look, I, I would love it if it was just as easy as putting a mask on and boom, it goes away. Wouldn't that be fantastic? But we have to look and see what's actually happening when we try. And if we look and we go, we put mandates in around the world, states, counties in the United States. You can look at all the data and watch the curve go up and then down and then right back up and right back down. And it's like those interventions don't seem to matter. You might be able to find specific situations where they matter, like in a hospital in this setting, it helps a lot for the general public. It doesn't really uh, help at all, you know, but like we're not even allowed to talk about it. And if we're not allowed to talk about it, if it's just like not like, just trust the science. It's like, well, that's what science is talking about. It. Science is examining the data. Science is going like, we tried experiment 
A, and it didn't, like, we had a hypothesis. We thought it would do this. We thought trying this intervention would achieve this, and it didn't. Let's modify the hypothesis, but we're not allowed to do that. It's interesting, too, because I'm thinking now about the whole issue, like every other issue, it seems like, uh, in politics right now, uh, or just in our society, I should say, everything is so politicized where it's, uh, well, you know, if even I, I cover more foreign policy stuff. So, you know, I was uh, a staunch supporter of the bill to block the the arms deal uh, to Saudi Arabia recently. And that was supported by Bernie Sanders and uh, Rand Paul. And people said, well, Rand Paul supports it, so it must be bad. And, you know, <laughs> Rand Paul also figures into this story in a way because, you know, he, him and Fauci have but it heads. And to me, it's like, well, I may agree with Rand Paul on one thing, but that doesn't mean I agree with him on everything else. Not everything is like as simple as, uh, you know, red tribe, blue tribe. Well, then you're, they're throwing out the entire concept of like a Congress, you know, like and trying to get vice uh, bipartisan support for a bill. You know, that's like that's just ridiculous. Like, yeah, like supporting a bill is not supporting the people who bring the bill. You know, it's like like you don't have to support them and everything they do just like oh i'm just looking at this one piece of legislation and i like what it says you know i like most of what it says so i support it i don't care if the you know if it's strom thurman bringing it you know like if strom thurman brings the don't eat babies bill i could be like oh i can't vote for that strom thurman's a racist it's like yes but i also don't want people eating babies so if we could just go for that bill do you have any thoughts on on uh the, the sort of Rand paul uh feud with Fauci or? Well, he was right. I mean, the unfortunate, you know, like, like him, hate him, whatever. Like, yeah, there's no person alive who's right about everything. You know, I'm not, you're not, nobody is like we all. And like you said about, you know, scientists, how their opinions evolve. Like if your opinions don't evolve, you're not paying attention. Like you're not learning. You're not growing. If I thought everything I thought when I was 20, I would kick my own ass like you should be able to grow and, and incorporate new information and go, you know what? I used to think of it this way, but then I learned these new things and now I've changed my opinion. And like, that means that at one point you were wrong. <laughs> and so people are going to be wrong. And so if, you know, Rand Paul is wrong about some stuff, that's, that's to be expected. But in that situation with Fauci, he was right. And all Fauci and all he wanted him to do was to, to talk about this gain of function issue. And I'm sure part of Rand Paul's motivation is because, you know, he's a fiscal conservative. He probably doesn't want the government financing such stuff. And for him, this is an example of where financing it can possibly go awry. And so maybe you don't even, you know, maybe you're like, oh, I don't like his motivations. He's, he doesn't he just hates any sort of government spending. But that doesn't matter because like right there, he was right. And then Fauci lied about it multiple times. And what we're going to see is another powerful politically connected insider get away with lying under oath. Whereas, you know, if someone like you or I were to do that, we would be hung by our heels. Do you think, uh, what do you think the motivations are? Do you think it's, I mean, because I, I could see some people being motivated by, well, I have to speak confidently, even if I, you know, could say, I don't know, uh, because I, I don't want to cause a panic. You know, we, we, we have this responsibility to seem confident. Or do you think there's something else going on there? Do you, or do you think it's a combination of things, motivations? Oh, uh, uh, with, with, with Fauci's, are you talking about with Oh, uh, with Fauci? Fauci in particular, um, but also other figures like Dashik. I mean, Dashik, he is pure and simple, has uh, so much to lose. He has uh, his reputation to lose, his career to lose. He's got everything to lose. And uh, 
and I'm and, and now at this point, quite frankly, like I think that the Eco Health Alliance needs to be investigated, like if you know, it, by the federal government. I, I think there should be just for the entire pandemic for where with a focus on where the virus came from. I think there should be a 9-11 commission style investigation. I think there should be a high level with subpoena power, federal investigation, make it bipartisan. And they need to crack open the files of the Eco Health Alliance. What do they have? They should know, they should have access to all of the sequences that were collected by the Wuhan Institute of Virology. They were going to Yunnan for years, years collecting samples and not just Yunnan, other parts of China going to Laos, the receptor binding domain of SARS-CoV-2 seems to very closely resemble the receptor binding domain of a virus called Benal-52, which was found in a cave in Laos. Laos borders Yunnan, they're very close. The Equal Health Alliance with the WIV was going to Laos. They were going to Yunnan. They, were, they have all the pieces, you know, they, and we could prove that. And we don't even have to go into China. We don't have to kick down the doors of the WIV, which we're never going to get to do. If we first just kick down the doors of the Eco Health Alliance, and we're just giving them time to destroy and hide and obfuscate. But right now, if we just subpoenaed all of their, their sequences, uh, subpoenaed all of their files, subpoenaed all of their emails, and also we should be subpoenaing the, the emails of a lot of the connected universities, uh, like at uh, Ralph Barrick's university at Uni University of North Carolina in the Barrick Lab. He was a longtime collaborator of Xi Jinping Li on coronavirus research, including gain-of-function research. But, but then again, Barrick also signed the open letter to science saying, please investigate the origins of this virus. Crack open his emails, crack open Fauci's emails and the emails of the National uh, Institutes of Health. We can probably pull a lot of this together and go beyond circumstantial evidence as to where this came from, especially if we look at the EcoHealth Alliance and say like, oh, you, what's this? What are these samples? Because so any lab is going to have samples, viral samples on hand before they publish them, right? There's all this talk like, oh, well, they published it in GenBank. You can go into GenBank and see what they had. That's after they publish on it. That's not everything they've collected. And all the stuff we've seen in the literature is stuff that was collected like prior to like 2016, because they don't get around to publishing on it immediately. They're holding it, waiting to work on it, waiting to do different stuff with it, waiting to sequence it. And they're backlogged, but we can go in and look and see what they have on hand. And, and, and with what I was saying about Fauci, and I, I'm assuming other figures as well, that maybe are making political considerations when they make confident statements or when they attack certain ideas. Do you, do you think uh, concerns about, oh, well, if I say this, it could cause a panic? Or do you think those things are motivators as well for some people? I mean, I really don't know with him. I mean, trying to guess somebody's motivations is really difficult. I can't get into it. I'm not trying head, to like defend him either. I, I am playing devil's advocate, a bit, I guess, but. I would just say this, the man never turns down a media appearance. And I feel like it's one true. of those things. <laughs> and I just feel like it's one of those things that if he was more uh, selective with when he went in front of a camera, more select, he could be more selective with his words and his statements. And if he was doing more of a job of examining the research, like looking at the research insofar as just like who the virus affects, how it affects them, uh, what's going on with immunity, what's going on with uh, acquired immunity after people have the infection. I had COVID, I had laboratory confirmed COVID, you know, I have acquired immunity. I, um, if, if we were, if he was spending more time looking into the data, so he would then have 
more knowledge to go forth when he did select to have a media appearance and, and to speak, he could probably speak more confidently. I'm just saying, like, I, I've just heard him say so many different things. And it's like, it, you can't j- jerk people back and forth because I mean, he'll just say things like, um, you know, uh, we're considering a, a domestic uh, mandate for, uh, for the vaccine, uh, having a vaccine card to get on an airplane, things like that. And then the next day, he'll just be like, no, we're not really thinking about that. It, it just jerks people around. It jerks whole industries around. You know, people are going to react. It's like it's like how the stock market reacts to a thing. Like, well, all of a sudden, it's like, oh, wait, that's going to happen. We, we sell, 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 sell. You know, if you're if you're making people think like all of a sudden there's going to be this requirement to get on an airplane. Oh, it, that could totally shake up their business, you know, depending on what they do. Well, that with could their cause business, a panic in itself. Up. Yeah. Exactly. So you can't you can't talk about what we're mulling over and what we're considering and what the what the talk is at the, around the you know when we're drinking our morning coffee down at the at the NIH you know like just he's got to come in with more prepared confident statements on what's going on and certain things he might be yeah, right I have no comment on that right now holy like sorry I keep swearing he can just say I have no comment that is totally a viable answer like this is you know things are being discussed at this it's not appropriate for me to comment on that at this time. Uh, I, I'd like, I, I don't want to say anything about that until I have a more confident response for you, you know, things like that. Just a few more things here. So uh, are there any figures in particular that you interviewed that you would like listeners uh, to know about or, or anyone that is sort of key to the podcast that you've done? So most of the people I spoke with were members of the Drastic Collective, and the Drastic Collective has had a little shakeup recently, and they kind of split into two. And uh, but basically, I, I've been speaking with people, uh, data scientists, uh, biologists, you know, dr- drug developers, virologists, uh, to really get their sense of what's going on and what looks what looks bad what look you know what, what leads them to believe that there's uh, a, a trail to be followed that may very well lead to the Wuhan Institute of Virology and you know so like uh, there's a guy named Gilles Demenuve he's a data scientist out of New Zealand and he talked a lot about the the databases that the WIV had that went offline so you know the Wuhan Institute of Virology had these uh, databases that had portions that were publicly accessible and they went offline and people were like, Hey, where are those databases? And Xi Jinping Li basically gave this answer that was like, Oh, when the pandemic started, there were hacking attempts on our, on our servers. So we took them down. He, well, he then helped, a guy, uh, Xi Jinping Li was the one that helped sequence the virus, right? Yes. She's the one they called the bat lady. She's been working on like coronaviruses have been her uh, Batborne coronaviruses have been her specialty for years, and she's taken multiple trips down to the caves of Yunnan and amongst other places to collect samples. and uh, And she works in conjunction with Barrick and all that. Um, but they found that those databases actually went offline on September twelfth of twenty nineteen. And a man named Charles Small in the UK was the person who discovered this by going into these different computer logs. And he gave that information a drastic, and then uh, several of the members kind of compiled a whole report on this. So Xi Jinping Li is lying, saying like, oh, we took them offline after the pandemic started. And it's like, actually, you took them offline on September 12th, 2019. What's going on? And if you look at a lot of the circumstantial data as to when this lab leak is likely to have occurred, it looks like it's in the maybe like roughly the October timeframe, maybe late September, maybe early November. A lot of it looks like October. So it's very suspicious that the databases are going offline in that time. Like, was that because they were 
about to do certain experiments that they wanted to not be seen? Was it because something bad had already happened? Who knows? So we mentioned biodefense earlier, and I've seen there's figures on the right, like Tom Cotton, who have wanted to use the pandemic to sort of single out uh, Chinese biodefense. Um, But I really feel like one of the things that gets lost in the shuffle uh, with this whole debate is the the broader issue of biodefense and and biosafety and, you know, precautions taken within these labs and whether uh, the precautions are always taken um, to their uh, strictest possible uh, extent. Uh, How does biodefense figure into all of this? Because I don't think Chinese biodefense is uniquely dangerous. Uh, I, I think this is like a global issue. It probably is a global issue. And I imagine, look, I, I highly doubt there's anything they're doing that America's not doing, you know, the United States isn't doing. Um, and the problem is once something starts, it's so hard to un- unmake it, right? Once you have all the contractors and all the money uh, flowing in and all the people employed, all the labs are built to the, and all of a sudden say like, mm, we don't need this. We shouldn't have this. There's so much inertia, so many vested interests in keeping it going that trying to undo it becomes so infeasible. You know, like it, it goes for anything military. It goes for pretty much anything government or bureaucratic. You know, you could look well, at a lot the of these war US on drugs. Labs, you know. The U.S. labs operate in secret too. And we've also found out eventually that there's they're accident prone at times as well. Oh, 100%. There's, you cannot make them not accident prone. You know, and like, I think that's the problem is people, it, there's so much hubris right? This is, there's so much hubris. There's so much belief that like we can control this stuff and we can't, we can to a degree, but there's always going to be, there's always going to be accidents. And some of the accidents are like pathetic. You know, some of them are, are, are terrifying, like accidentally mailing vials of smallpox when you meant to mail something else, you know, stuff like that, like where you're like, Jesus, you know, like, how do you make that mistake? But it happens. A lot of these things happen. And if you look into Alison Young's reporting uh, in USA Today from 2015, and I think she did some updates since the uh, since the COVID pandemic. Uh, she she notes hundreds and hundreds of examples. I mean, these things are happening all the time. And then you start having. And here's the thing: if you if you make biodefense a thing, and you make you know, and, and really, what are we talking about here? Biodefense is not just biodefense; it's biooffense as well. And if you make that a thing, then your your rivals need to make it a thing they go oh well you know the the americans are doing this we we got to do it too so all of a sudden now you're going to start having labs pop up around the world and maybe in places where they don't have as much money to invest they don't have as much talent to invest so now you're increasing the risk of some sort of leak if you if if all of a sudden you know like a poorer state that you know like feels you, you know that they need to be competitive at this but they don't have the tech and the finances and, and, the, and the staff to do it. Now you're increasing the, the, the possibility that this is going to go right, just like nuclear weapons, right? Where you're just like, please, well, I, we, don't, I think, we don't want everyone around the world making them. I, I think the big concern right now is, you know, for me, I mean, I, I think we're moving towards uh, what's been called a, a Cold War 2.0 scenario with the US on one side and China and Russia on the other. And, you know, this could lead to a uh, a bio arms race, essentially, which I think is yeah. very concerning, regardless of how one feels about the pandemic. Well, uh, you know, and, and Paul Thacker interviewed, I'm trying, to, I'm trying to remember her name, but he was telling me all about it. I, I, 
people have to look this up. I can't remember the woman's name and uh, I feel bad, but she wrote a book about, you know, Chinese spies working at bio labs in Canada, you know, and it, 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 all this is happening in like what you're talking about, like this cold war and stuff. It's also happening at the time when we're all trying to like play at peace and like this international solidarity of science. So it's like, we're trying to like swap our people and it's like, everything will be great. We won't fight if everyone's working together. So if we send American scientists there, French scientists here and Chinese students are studying at our universities that will build cooperation. And to an extent it really does. And to an extent, there's something really beautiful about that, but it also creates the cover for bad actors. And I'm sure, I'm not just saying China's the only one who does this. I'm sure Iran does this and the United States does this and the UK does this. But then you can send in your people who are acting as spies into like labs and universities and other research facilities around the world to find out what those people are doing. And and, and then it just, cre- it just increases the pressure, it increases the tension, you know? And it's like, I, I don't think you or I wanna be in this Cold War 2.0 situation. And it does, it does look like, yeah, the more you build up these labs, you call it bio defense, uh, but it, but it also at the same time is building offensive capability. But so is the human health stuff, right? That's where it gets really murky. Like I was saying earlier, applying to DARPA for grants and the DOD for grants, and uh, it, to, to do this. Oh, this we're just trying to do this stuff for prevention of pandemics and and to promote human health. But really, when this stuff has dual use, when like that in, now all that information is now in the hands of militaries around the world, they know what's available and how to manipulate it for offensive capabilities. You know, it's, it's all very, it's all very murky. Why else, why else would the defense department want to fund this sort of stuff, right? Like why else would it be considered in their purview? You know, they're not funding like ballet training for Chinese kids, you know, it has no use to them, but, you know, they're, but they, but they will fund, you know, going off and finding viruses and then finding ways to like make them infectious and then, develop the the cure for yourself so your own troops can all have the proper vac- vaccination and then you can go spread something in some other country and you know wipe them out uh, before your invasion they they want that information half because they're afraid of someone else doing it to them and half because they you know they want that capability so what do you see as the solutions to the broader problems here with regards to uh, biodefense and, and things of that nature lab leaks lab accidents are there ways that we can have reforms, uh, more transparency? What, what do you see as the solutions? Or should we just stop doing this research entirely? Where, where do you stand on that? Well, well, yes. I mean, yes. That's. I mean, that's the actual solution, but that's not the one we're going to get. That's never going to happen. I don't think. Like, we're not. We're smart enough. Like, I, I, I wanted to say we're not smart enough to do that, but we are. Like, people are. People are instead. Like, people who aren't don't have a vested interest are smart enough to go. Oh, just don't do that. You know, but people who have a vested interest are like, no, I, I must continue do that, doing that. And I'm the one with the power. So I'm going to continue doing that. Um, so then the question becomes, are there ways to like make it safer, which is almost crazy to say, like, is there safe plague research work? Um, but I, I don't know. I, I hate talking about solutions to almost any problem because like every time you think you've come up with one, you can just like back engineer it and back engineer it. You actually, and thus, until we do this, that won't work. And then until we do this, that won't work. So I'm, I'm, I'm not big for suggesting solutions, I don't think. Um, but I think there was a moratorium on gain-of-function research uh, for you know, pathogens of pandemic potential. It was a moratorium on, on, on funding it via the National Institutes of Health. That moratorium did expire. Um, and then I don't, I, I, I think, moratoriums 
on this research would be wonderful. Like if you, but how do you get an international one? How do you, how do you get, you know, like there's so much fear. It's like, oh, if we stop, if we stop researching it and they don't, you know, well, then we're behind. So I don't know. How do you get the, how do you get a global moratorium on it? Now there've been global moratoriums on other things like, you know, what, like those like CFCs and aerosol, but it turned out people were just violating that anyway, just doing, you know, people were just breaking that. So I don't know. You're just going to depress me trying to push me into well, solutions. I, I was going to say, I mean, I, I, I was going to say ju- just from my end, thinking about this in terms of the, the Bush era and the war on terror era, you know, I, I think there was this line of, well, you know, biodefense, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, we, we need total transparency because the bad guys will get these deadly flus. And I'm like, well, you know, it's not that simple either, because I, I'm pretty sure uh, it would kill just as many of their people to release a deadly flu on purpose. And, and I, I think the arguments against having some level of transparency around issues of biosafety and, and biosecurity, biodefense, I, I think they fall on their face once you examine them closer. Well, I mean, that particular example, I don't, I mean, you're, you might be right that there are other good counter arguments, but that particular example with the flu, uh, it doesn't fly if they've created a, a vaccine for it at the same time that they've created it and they distribute their vaccine for it and then release it or, or release it and then quickly distribute their vaccine for it. Maybe they're willing to take some losses, but they won't take all. And maybe they distribute it to their soldiers and other people of import first. Right. So they go, okay, like we're just gonna pretend, or they just slip it into the flu, you know, their flu vaccination for the year that, so everyone just thinks they're getting the regular flu vaccine, but not knowing they've been inoculated against like super flu X that's about to be released, you know, that, that could potentially happen, you know? So, um, I'm not saying that that's a reason to continue doing all this. I'm just saying that as a, a point to ponder on your particular example. So then uh, just in closing here, where do you think all of this is, is headed? Because I think we have had uh, a lot more discussion about the lab leak hypothesis. And like I said, I, in some ways I'm still wary of the lab leak just because I, I I get worried about people getting too hawkish uh, or using it for, you know, hawkish ends. And I'm, I'm a pro diplomacy, pro peace person. I don't think that's what you're doing, by the way. Uh, I know. I I, yeah. I, f- I feel like it's unfortunate that you feel that way, that like you're, you're standoffish because of that. And th- th- like, well, I, that's also, a resp- I also just don't know. I haven't, I, I don't think certainly, no, yeah. certainly. But I, I, I don't think we, that I just think it's cart before the horse to fear what people will do with the truth once the truth is found and therefore that we should avoid finding the truth. Well, yeah. And so as a journalist, always... I, you know, ultimately I can't be the person that says, Oh, we shouldn't look at this because uh, it could have this yeah. effect because that's not what journalists are supposed to do. They're supposed to seek and, out what the, the truth of the matter is. And I, you know, I'm not, I'm not hawkish at all. I don't, I don't wish for any sort of like war. I, I wouldn't even know what repercussions should be. I, I, you know, they should, but like at the same time, you can't have people causing these massive global problems where tons of people die and then lying about it and hiding it and then potentially allowing it to happen again. Uh, so I definitely think the truth matters and we should get to the bottom of it. I, I'm really disheartened by how little interest there seems to be in it. And I think part of that is because there's so much of a fight just about response uh, because the, you know, the, the virus still exists and is still moving through people and people are, people are fighting to have an honest conversation about just the present of what's going on. People are fighting to have a, a conversation about like 
vaccine efficacy, vaccine adverse events. Uh, you know, they're fighting to have a, a truthful conversation about like uh, risk factors and, and deadliness of the disease and how to respond to the disease. And, and because we're so caught up in that discussion, I think people don't have the bandwidth to focus entirely on the origins of the pandemic because they're still dealing with the pandemic in the present. And they're, they're, they're so concerned with virus, you know, response to the virus and like, are, are the vaccines good? Are the vaccines bad? Should everybody have the vaccine? Should just the vulnerable have the vaccine? Should you make someone take the vaccine? Should you make a kid take the vaccine? Should kids be in school? Like people have all these questions and, you know, and, and it's such a fight, you know, it's been such a fight. And unfortunately we're not allowed to have this as an adult discussion and like examine data and research. And because of that, people are so, so there, they're not going, they're not, taking the time to look into the origins of the virus. And I don't think they will until a lot of this other stuff has subsided. The, the other thing, and I, I should clarify when I say reticence too, because I'm also, you know, I think people that completely uh, dismiss uh, the possibility of lab leak, I don't think that's a good idea either. And I think most people would agree on that, that, you know, ultimately, you know, we don't know the origin definitively. And there has to be more and more investigation into that if we're going to get an answer to that. But I, I guess for me, I don't like that side of it where it's like no possibility of a lab leak. But I also feel like there's another side that will not be happy if we do more investigation and we find out it, it you know, likely wasn't a lab leak or, or if we find more information counteracting that so I, I feel like any, yeah, any, anytime people like really stake a claim, you know, they often become hard to move on that claim because they've put so much of their own ego identity behind it. I actually find that at least the people I engage with, on like the research front still seem very open to the possibility that there, there was a, a, a natural jump that explains all this. They just don't feel that the evidence points in that direction at this time. And I think we're unfairly made to think that it's like a 50, 50 toss up that it's like, well, one could be one could be the other. It's not 50, 50. It's probably more like 70, 30 or 90, 10 in favor of lab leak. Even I would sit here and go like, maybe we like it, it totally, it could be totally proven. There could be something that's just got missed and it's out there and we'll stumble upon it and go, Oh, it went from here to here to here. And that's where, and but like what they need to find right now is a virus that's effectively 99.9% .9 similar to SARS-CoV-2 in, in, in an animal or a person and, and demonstrate where it went from one place to another. And they have not been able to do that, not been able to get even close. And they have looked harder for this than they have looked for any uh, virus uh, previously to have jumped from, from animal to to people. They have looked at thousands and thousands and thousands of potential animal samples. They know you can genetically look and find that the closest viruses, you can pinpoint where the progenitors come from. And it's that Yunnan area of China, like, cause things change and evolve as they move away from that space. So, you know, so you have to find the, the trail and we have more advanced technology now than we had in the early 2000s with SARS. Like, so and we have and we have more of a global reason to look and the chinese government has had everything to gain by finding the natural the natural point of jumping and it's not been able to be done 
Yeah, and, and what I was going to say in closing and just adding to that, it, it, relating this again to 9-11, I keep going back to the war on terror, but, you know, with, with the watchdogs didn't park, the, the thing that always got me was, well, the interviews you guys did with, you and Ray did with uh, Richard Clark and, and also Mark Rosini. And of course, I, I ended up interviewing Rosini as well. And, you know, I've seen multiple articles uh, dealing with what Clark has had to say about 9-11 and what Rosini has had to say. And, and they're, I mean, to me, I, I think that they're both saying, and maybe Clark would disagree with me on this. I think he's a little bit more ambiguous about it, but I think they're both saying, why was this information about the Malaysia terror summit not shared? And the only reason I can think of, uh, or at least this is Rosini's reasoning, uh, is that there was an illegal recruitment operation going on uh, with the CIA to undercut uh, the FBI because uh, the CIA didn't have enough uh, operatives, or they didn't penetrate uh, the, these terror cells enough, and they were embarrassed by that. Now, the thing I've always seen when you bring that argument up is, well, no answer. <laughs> I've never seen an answer to uh, what Rosini and Clark are saying. I've never seen a, a sufficient answer to the questions they have. And for me, I think we should be able to ask questions like that. And I would say that's also true of uh, COVID origins as well. I, I think, you know, when we're not allowed to ask the questions and we're not getting sufficient answers for pretty reasonable questions, that's a problem. Yeah, and, and it's a question that everyone should want the answer to. And if not everyone, there's definitely people who it is their job to get that answer, you know, and they need to be allowed to do that. And you know, I, I think this is probably, I hate to say it, I think it's going to fall into that category, just like 9-11, where we're going to see it delayed until it can be forgotten and until other things can be held well, the, in higher priority. The thing is, I, and I guess what I was getting at is I would be willing to say, oh, you know, maybe Rosini is wrong with his sort of circumstantial case for why uh, the information wasn't shared about the Malaysia Terror Summit, if someone could provide uh, proper counter evidence to what he's well, not even Yeah. Not even that it wasn't shared, but that they lied internally and said it had been shared and lied multiple well, yeah, times yeah. later saying it had been shared. So like it, they made sure no one actually did but share he, it and then lied about that later. So it's like, there's clearly a thing there to be answered for. And those people were never asked those questions. They have been allowed to go 20 years without being asked those questions. And that's the world we live in. Yeah. And well, that, that's sort of what I'm getting at. If, if, if they can answer for it, you know, I, I will adjust my opinion. Uh, and yeah. I think that's the same with uh, this issue of, of uh, the COVID origins, because, you know, I, 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 one thing I don't like is this idea that uh, we can't ask questions about the potential for a lab leak. I think that's, uh, you know, to me, just authoritarian to say, you can't even ask the question. Uh, it's bizarre to me. Well, and Peter Dajak and Xi Jinping Li have been caught in so many lies since this has started. I mean, and, and doing bizarre things like like renaming a virus sample, uh, you know, BT Cove four nine nine one to RATG thirteen uh, when they release their paper when Xi Jinping Li releases the paper with the first SARS CoV two. Uh, genome uh, sequence, uh, also putting up the RATG, 
13 sequence, but just stopping um, in the in the figure right before the Fury and Cleavage site, despite the fact that there's more room for it, uh, lying about sampling dates, lying about when samples were sequenced, lying about how much is left, uh, hiding whole clades of viruses that were in their possession. It's, you know, insisting that those miners in Mojang had a fungal infection when uh, testing showed that they had a viral infection with a SARS-like virus. Uh, so many lies told to run cover for this. And people still ask them their opinions. They still ask what they think. You know, it's like, it's like, yeah, there's so many things that need to be answered for. And nobody, like, nobody with any real power asks them to, to come clean on, on those previous statements and, and to explain what they meant, you know, like, yeah, I'll change my opinion. If you can show me why you lied this time and this time and this time and this time. Uh, but, but no one's making sure they do that. And the problem is no one is in the majority public is really aware that this is even happening. They don't know that this lady over here who does all this work has been lying through her teeth since this uh, pandemic started. They don't know about her connections to Dajak and, and, and the lies that he has told. And they, they, they just don't know because it's not being covered. So it starts with this, we're not going to try to find the truth attitude. And then the handful of people who are digging and scratching and digging and scratching are finding all this stuff. And it's like a gold mine. It's like, look, there is totally something here to be investigated. And it's just, it's just brushed off. Like it doesn't matter. And because of that, those rich, juicy details don't make it to page two or three of the newspaper. They don't make, get a three minute explanation on, on the news. So, nobody, you know, the narrative is so easy to control. It's so easy to like, just make people think a thing and decide a thing and to be mad at who they're supposed to be mad at. And, and then, you know, just nerds like us sit around on podcasts, you know, so talking about in it. Closing, how, bad. In closing, how can my listeners listen to uh, Origins, Birth of a Pandemic? I believe it's double asterisk media, right? So our website is doubleasterismedia.com and you can go there. Oh, I think right now we only have the first three episodes uploaded there. I think it's the other, the last three up, but all of them are available on Spotify, Apple, and all the other major podcatchers. So if you just go into Spotify and just do a search for origins, birth of a pandemic, it's there. Same thing, Apple. Uh, we'd love for you to listen. Um, it's, it, it had a, a pretty good listenership. And then, but I haven't done much promotion on it uh, for a few months now. I, been moving on to other things. So thank you for having me on to talk about it. Uh, it was created with the idea that it could be a, just like a history of the, like the lab leak thing. So you'll, you'll hear different, like it, punctuated points in the show of like kind of what's going on in, in the investigation, in politics, uh, in, in, in sort of society and how they were discussing it, but also going to like these virologists and biologists and researchers talking about the specifics of the virus and like why they think one thing or the other. And I, I hope the six episodes last uh, for the next few years as, as a resource for people to brush up on the topic and then to pass on to others who want to know about it. Real, real quick, by the way, because uh, I forgot to mention it earlier, because I can't recall if you spoke to her on the podcast, but did you ever get a chance to speak to um, Dr. Ar or uh, Alice Young, the, the journalist? Because I actually have tried getting in contact with her and uh, she, she doesn't do many media interviews, to my knowledge, or that's what I've heard, uh, which I always, which I always love about journalists when it's like their whole life depends on people talking to them, but then they won't talk. Seymour Hirsch was like that with us a long time ago, but um, still like him. Uh, but no, I spoke with her, but not in an official interview. I let her know that I was using her. I was going to read that clip uh, in the show and that I made her aware of the show where she could listen to it. And, and she thanked me for that. And, but that was, that was all.
Yeah, and I, uh, just for my listeners, I would highly recommend her work, uh, regardless of, like I said, where anyone stands on COVID, I think is almost beside the point with, with her work, because her work is very broad in terms of looking yeah. at issues related to biosafety. I mean, just, you'll be terrified. <laughs> well, thank you again, John Duffy, for coming on Parallax Views. Oh, thank you so much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Mickey Huff and Nolan Higdon and John Duffy. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. For $5 tier and above supporters, we have a new series starting on Parallax Views this week with C. Derek Varn, a longtime friend of the show, formerly of Zero Books, and I look forward to getting that out to all of you. So if you're interested in that, Parallax Views on Patreon, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views. With Jerry Mike you to Parallax Jerry with Jerry The way out is not simply to say don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing this like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm. I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff, it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight. With no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.